All right, back at the Young Turks. Joining me in studio, Marianne Williams, the presidential candidate. Marianne, great to have you here. Great to be here, thank you. All right, so last night we had a presidential debate. You were not in it. No. And you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. And what's your beef with how they are deciding who should be on the debate stage? I think that the purpose of all political establishments and political parties and the media should be to facilitate democracy, not dictate democracy. And the DNC, with its rules, with its power, with its money, has sought to shut something down. I don't think it's their job to shut anything down. I think this is the moment when the process should be opened up. I think the deciders should be the voters. If you want to narrow the field, that's what primaries are for. That's what elections are for. So I totally agree with the primaries, airing out the differences, this whole, you know, let's get along well I don't know your your point of view is very different than John Delaney's point that's of view right. and I want to and that's why I interview both of you find out where, where you stand etc so I'm totally with you on that but do they have a point that they can't let everybody on stage so for example Wayne Messam is a mayor of uh, in Miramar Florida he's running for president but honestly he hasn't done well I interviewed him too because I believe in outsiders I believe in different voices but he hasn't done well um, so should he be on the debate stage? What does it mean to quote unquote not do well? When you look at how opaque this poll process is, the polling process is just the equivalent of superdelegates. It's a way of making sure that it stays within our crowd. What's happening here is a rebranding of the old party bosses who met in a back room and decided who the candidate was going to be. It's faux democracy. It's branded as an open process. It's not an open process, and and dangerously so, because it's the same as, as last time, really. Last time it had to be Hillary. We know that they put their finger on the scale. And this time, basically, it, it, it is designed so that it, quote unquote, has to be one of those six. So you charged the Democratic Party of being in some ways more elitist than even maybe the Republican <coughs> Party, which I don't really necessarily disagree with. I think for me it's not about the policies, it's their attitude, but I'm curious why you say that. Well, it's ironic, isn't it? Because the Republicans have the elitist policies, but this oddly more egalitarian relationship to its own constituency. They let the oddball, what they perceive the oddballs, let everybody in. Whereas the Democrats have the more egalitarian policies, but an oddly more paternalistic, more elitist relationship to its own constituency. It's like you have to audition to be a Democrat these days. They have to figure out whether or not you toe the line with what they think a Democrat should stand for. I totally agree with that. And, and even when you stand for those things, they're, for whatever reason, if they might not, you know. Yeah, and you called it the stench of inauthenticity. <laughs> And unfortunately, I agree with that as well. Yeah, and so, and people can sense it. And and so, and I think a lot of the media goes along with it. If if you're media is a partner, the corporate media. This is a this is a partnership. That's why I call it the political media industrial complex. No, this is a partnership between that political establishment, DNC, and the corporate media that co-creates this entertainment. It's just a reality show empire. So now that complex has. Uh, not being kind to you, okay. No, and uh, so I want to break that down a little bit. Let's break down the mess, and then let's talk about what it is you actually stand for. Okay. So uh, they'll throw on the word crystals, for example, yeah. right? And I know that that gets under your skin. No, at, at this point, I'm too old and too been around too long. It's just somebody find me a crystal. Do you see a crystal in any of my books? You, have you ever seen me with a crystal on stage? Have you ever heard me talk to you about crystals? No crystals, no orbs. I, don't even, I didn't even know the word orb, actually. Although there is a picture of Donald Trump holding an orb with his Saudi friends. Well, yeah, no kidding. Right? Yeah, well, it's like Dave Navarro says, if he's a warlock, why not a sorceress? 
<laughs> well, maybe so. So now, in terms of what you've traditionally done, your your career outside of running for president. Yes. So for the people that don't know, what is it that you do? Like people always refer to you as a spiritual person, an advisor, etc. Yeah. So what does that mean? Imagine a non-denominational clergy person, except because it's non-denominational, because it's not within organized religion. You know, there's this term these days, the new spirituality. There are many people in in our in our country who want the deeper spiritual themes and principles that are universal and are, are at the core of all the great religious and spiritual teachings of the world, but aren't interested in religious dogma, aren't interested in doctrine, aren't interested in the institutional uh, realities. But they, they want the spiritual sustenance. They know that there's something there, and that is actually growing. And I'm someone who articulates those things, speaks about those things, writes about those things, taught about those things. And most particularly in terms of how it relates to running for president, my skill set, my work has been applying these universal principles to our lives, how they actually transform crisis into opportunity. Now, what I've seen in the last um, 15, 20 years, and you certainly know this, I have had for 35 years a career working with people in trouble. But for the last 15 years, I've seen too many people in trouble that shouldn't be in trouble. In other words, into everybody's life, rain might fall. You might lose someone that you love, your partner might leave, your child might be addicted, the test results might come back and they're bad um, in terms of cancer or whatever. But I heard a story once. I don't know what the title of the story would be, but I call it the, the, the shift from the Good Samaritan to the Conscious Samaritan. The Good Samaritan's walking down the road, sees a beggar, gives the alms to the beggars, walks down the road some more, sees a beggar, gives alms to the beggars, walks down the road, sees a beggar, gives alms to the beggars. And after a certain, many, certain uh, number of times doing this, the Samaritan says, why are there so many beggars? That's what I've gone through over the last 15 years. Why are so many people in trouble in the richest country in the world? Why are so many people who have done all the right things having such a hard time economically? Why are so many people who have done all the things that supposedly if you do those you wouldn't have to worry about money, having to worry about being strapped by college loans in the richest country in the world when they did all the right things to have the career that they should have? So at this point, my uh, my exposure to the negative personal effects, the effects on people's lives of bad public policy, has taken me to a place where it's clear that the people who are making these laws, who are determining these policies, have no freaking clue what they're doing to people's lives, and therefore have very little insight into the kinds of fundamental changes that have to occur in order to heal people's lives and to heal the society. Well, so far I agree with all that. I, I think that if you're not noticing the pain in the country with wages being suppressed for 40 years, even though everybody's working harder, not That's the right. same, That's harder, right. and two families, uh, two uh, people working uh, within the family uh, when it used to be one, and uh, the list goes on and on, and the destruction that our healthcare system uh, brings uh, to the entire American people and all the lives lost, etc. So we know all that. Uh, Reasonable people don't disagree. Almost everyone on TV does disagree. They think everything's hunky dory or yeah. was right before Trump came in. If we just go back to Shangri La where they had everything, everything will be fine. Now, most people are with you, they don't think that's the case. Uh, and and you, I think you've also correctly assessed that it's public policy. It's they're making the laws. Bad public policy did this, and good public policy can, can change this. So then let's talk about that. Okay. Well, okay, so. 
And it connected two things for me, because you started from a spiritual place and you see this, this problem in the country. Does spirituality have anything to do with fixing it? Yes, absolutely, because spirituality is just the path of the heart. So in your own personal life, you have to be guided by conscience, you have to be guided by compassion, you have to be guided by mercy in order to live a life that works, in order not only to attract good things, to create good things, but also to repair things that have gone wrong. All that a country is is a collection of people. So public policy should be guided by conscience, just like individual behavior should be guided by conscience. You don't give all your money to just a few people and leave millions and millions and millions of people to live in the chronic, chronic stress of what will happen if I get sick? What will happen if one of my kids gets sick? How will I send my children to college? And how will I get um, out from under these college loans? It's not the right thing to do. We should talk about what is the right thing to do? How do you treat people? How, what is it that would make people thrive? That should be the guiding principle of every public policy, whether domestic or international. That's the kind of fundamental change we need, and which will happen if I'm president, because that is the kind of fundamental underlying shift that will then uh, uh, will then be expressed in the changes in public policies. So this is where uh, the interesting part begins, okay. okay? Because so I don't think, look, I'm not anywhere near as spiritual as you are. Uh, I, I believe in and I, that there are great truths that the Taoists, the Sufis, the transcendentalists have, and I deeply respect them, right? The Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims are in there too. A little bit. They're all in a little there. Little bit. Okay, uh, less so, but okay. <laughs> all uh, the same, actually. Right. Anyway, uh, but I think the fix is one that is deeply political, uh, taking money out of politics. So uh, yes, I agree. So that we don't have the legalized bribery that we have now, etc. So uh, let's talk about those fixes. I mean, so I, asking people to have a conscience, I don't think is going to work. Uh, I think that the people that have power right now got there through a corrupt system and they were selected maybe specifically because they don't have a conscience. Well, but, let's, but that's because of the money in politics. I'm not out there asking people to have a conscience. I've been talking to people about having a conscience for a 35 year career. What I'm saying is, You've been, I think the American people are fine. The problem is not the American people. I think the American people, I think we're better than other people, but I think we're dignified and decent. The average American is fine. That's not the problem. The average American does, I believe, have a, have, have a questioning. What is the right thing to do? How do I treat people right? My conversation with people now isn't have a conscience. It's take that same inquiry inquiry and apply it to the larger collective and not just to your own life. It's not enough to say, I care about loving my children. You've also got to love children on the other side of town. You've got to love children on the other side of the world. It's not enough to say, is what I did the right thing? You also have to ask, is it the right thing that the United States, for the sake of $360 billion in uh, arms sale to Saudi Arabia, is giving aerial support to, the, to a genocidal war that has starved tens of thousands of Yemenis? It's, it's not just have a conscience. It's have a, have a participation, that's what citizenship, in demanding that conscience is exercised in the determination of public policy. Now, right now, public policy is not determined by that, as you well know. Uh, public policy is determined by advocacy for short-term profits for huge multinational corporate interests, not for advocacy for us, for the people of the world or the, or the planet. Now, there's... There are two things here. One, obviously, the domination of that corporate money, but also that we have begun to conspire 
with our own disempowerment. We've allowed ourselves to be turned into spectators by finding it somewhat convenient to be so chronically politically disengaged. So both changes have to happen. If this country, it, you, it, the American people need to rise up now. And that's what I believe I bring to the table. Um, so let's talk about how you would do it. Because uh, if you ask Elizabeth Warren, she would probably also tell you money in politics is a big problem, Absolutely. the corporate interest. Tom Steyer, who's a billionaire, uh, yesterday on the debate stage was talking about the corporate takeover over the government. Right. And that's he's absolutely right about right. that. It's something you talk about. And he's not the only billionaire who knows that and even says it today. Right. Um, and even Klobuchar would probably concede that there is an issue. Uh, she might have a different remedy and she might- That's what she would say, I just have a different remedy. Right. Maybe. So then- Help folks understand what would be the difference between you, Warren, and Klobuchar and how you deal with that really critical issue. Well, you know, Franklin Roosevelt said that the primary responsibility of the presidency is moral leadership. He said the administrative aspect of the job is secondary. So in terms of the policies that need to change, on an economic level, I'm very much over there with Elizabeth and Bernie. But there's more to it than just the economic level. There's also the job of enrolling the American people in the kind of fundamental change that needs to be made. And if we are going to achieve the kind of fundamental shift that we, that we need, it cannot be done only from an oppositional place. You know, Martin Luther King said you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. I think that a lot of this is why it's very interesting to me how many people told me I'm Republican, but I vote for you. I voted for Trump, but I vote for you. I'm an independent, but I vote for you. People want to feel that their values are affirmed. And within that space, it's amazing how much you can disagree with people and they're okay with that. Millions of Americans feel the elitism that we were talking about and feel the arrogance of the Democratic Party, particularly regarding their faith, regarding their spiritual values. And the fact that a lot of people, one woman in South, in South Carolina said to me, we know you're a liberal darling, but you're a woman of God, so we'll vote for you. I mean, there are a lot of people who, I was reading an article in Bloomberg of all places saying, Williamson has all these conservatives enrolled in the reparations argument because she's coming at it from a moral a, a, a moral place. So when I talk to people about how we need a season of moral repair, it's a moral issue that you feed your children. It's a moral issue that you don't let 13 million hungry children exist in the richest country in the world. It's a moral issue that you don't let millions of American children go to school every day in classrooms that don't even have adequate school supplies with which to teach a child to read, knowing that if a child can't read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are so diminished and the chances of incarceration are so drastic, drastically increased. When I talk about a Department of Children and Youth and I talk about the chronic trauma of American children, I'm talking about this as a moral issue. When I talk about a Department of Peace, when I talk about giving as much robust uh, support to those who wage peace as to those who need to prepare for war if war must come. It's a moral issue. When I talk about reparations, it's a moral issue. We need to do some radical truth telling here. It can't just be a policy fix here and a policy fix there. It can't just be talking about the symptoms. We have to present to the American people a far more holistic, integrative vision of a real fundamental turning, a turning of the heart a return to real the principles of democracy and humanitarian principles. And that, that speaks to something in people. We've got to remember, Cambridge Analytica is on the move. It was on the move last time. It will be on the move this time. 
You've got the power of Cambridge Analytica, the power of Trump's incumbency, all of his shamelessness, all of his narcissism, and apparently the Russians as well. Cambridge Analytica was a military-grade propaganda weapon. It was developed for warfare. It employs data mining, some of it from very shadowy sources, that is developed to trigger, to manipulate, and to propagandize on almost unimaginable levels. It is a weapon of fear that has the power to dismantle reason. That's what these people will be coming at us with. If we think that just talking about a policy shift here and a policy shift there is going to prevail, we are in such denial, Cenk. But if you talk about a cohesive vision based on love, love of our democracy, love of each other, love for our children, love for the earth, love of our, grand, our great, great grandchildren, you awaken something in people's brains. You awaken something in people's spirit. That is no small deal. Trump has ushered in an era of political theater. We will not be going back. He is a phenomenon, and we have to create a phenomenon of our own, not an individual, but an awakening and an inspiration that cannot be just from the same old group, just us. It has to be something that inspires millions of people who not only didn't vote last time, but also, I think, millions of people who voted for Trump but are at least disturbed. But if all we do is go on and on about how bad Trump is, we're making them wrong, that's scolding them, that will, that's shaming them, and it will not make them want to vote for us. I have a tough time with that one. Okay. Which one? So about well, scolding them. I me. like scolding them. Well, good. It makes me it feel really, really good. Do you want good. them to vote for you? Do you want okay. to win the election? Um, or do you want a lot of people who already agree with us to go, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. So look, let's get into it. There's so many things you mentioned okay. there that I want to talk about. Okay. But when you talk about it, an awakening, okay. um, that's where I, I think that a lot of people go, I don't know what that means. And then some people zone out. Or check out. I'll tell you what it means. And so I want to know okay. what does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. Millions of people voting who didn't vote last time. Hello, that's what it means. It means how? How do, how do we get them to do that? What is, what is the awakening part that gets people who don't normally vote to vote? People who think it's all bullshit anyway, and nothing's going to change no matter what I do, and it just hearing people go on with the same old same old conversation, they're not going to leave the house. The people who hear not just the truth, I'm not saying that my fellow candidates, uh, the other candidates are lying. They're not, they're telling the truth. But if you go to a court of law, your oath is not just to tell the truth. Your oath is to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I'm telling the, not just the truth, Jane. We gotta tell the whole truth. We gotta say nothing but the truth. We gotta lay it down in a way that makes people know, I see you. Mm. And I know this has been, I, I, this is why I think Bernie would have won last time, because he acknowledged the pain of people. But the thing is, this is not the moment, the last time was a moment of rage. I think that that's not the emotional tenor of this moment. The people who are enraged are already going to vote for us. That's not a problem. They're going to vote for the Democrat. This is a moment of exhaustion. Mm -hmm, that's and true. people want to feel comforted. They want to feel tended to. I'm your girl. <laughs> right, right. So that's really interesting. So there's a lot I agree with. First of all, I think that what you said about uh, reparations, where you said a debt is owed, you said yes. it in one of the debates. <laughs> that's why outside voices are really important. You framed yes. it in a way that resonated. It resonated even with me. Right. And I've now come to believe, I think reparations are very difficult to execute, but it's worth uh, figuring out how. And, and one thing that is, I think, at a minimum is reconciliation. We never had a full airing out in Congress or anywhere else where we said, look, this is what happened. This is what happened to African Americans in this country. And 
And, and we robbed them in this way, and then we had the 40 acres and a mule, and then we robbed them again. And then in Jim Crow, we robbed them again. And so it's not too much to say, sorry. Right? We should have, as a country, it's a moral healing, as you would say. But right? I think we're at a point when if you owed me $1,000, I would really appreciate the apology, but I also want the money back. <laughs> I actually, I don't, uh, you know, it's, it's really not about another commission, another airing out, another, it's actually not about that. It's sure. about learning enough of the history and then saying, okay, we owe you. When you talk about reconciliation, Germany has paid $89 billion to Jewish organizations since World War II. It was the paying of the reparations that has gone so far to uh, achieve reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Europe. Mm -hmm. All right, you very want to fair. I'll pay me back my money. <laughs> okay, well, this is a little bit of spirituality. In some of that's very me. spiritual. <laughs> Do the right thing. There's nothing spiritual is just the path of the heart that guides human behavior. So I, I hear you out on that, and and I again I think there's a ton of truth to it. I think Cambridge Analytica, you're empirically correct. They figured out the different passions of people. That's right. And they press those buttons. Fear is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. Disgust is another thing that triggers conservatives. Right. Uh, feeling of revulsion. That's right. And so you need someone who's had a 35 year career in motivating and inspiring from that which is hopeful, that which is inspirational, that which is deeply true, that which is transformative, that which is loving, that which is compassionate. That's the only power stronger than the power of a Cambridge analyst. So then I gotta get into those two issues. So when you say morality, if you mean in the ways that all that you've described here, I'm all in. Public uh, morality, not yeah, private morality. Yeah, <coughs> totally. And and being able to empathize with your fellow man. Yes. And and being an American used to mean something. And part of what it meant was we look out for one another, right? That's right. And that has broken down and, and in some parts never existed, to be honest. Okay. But the other side of morality is, is in my opinion, is insanity. Uh, so, whoa, whoa, whoa. okay, Why? so How? I don't mean morality <laughs> as an actual morality. I mean morality as it is commonly understood in America, where one group, one religious group, uh, puts their so-called morality on everyone else and says, "You must do Those this." Those are issues of private morality. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about universal public moral themes. Doing right by others, living by conscience. You know, what I want is public policy that helps people thrive. So you can even take the M word out, although I don't think that the, that the Democratic Party or the left has won from being too cruel to use the word. Because if you do not provide people with a genuine moral vision, they will go with the people who present presenting the ersatz version. Same with patriotism. So if you're too cool to use the word, great guys, that was genius. So they went with the counterfeit one. But let's say we do leave the word out. Leave the word out and just talk about that which makes people thrive. That's the ultimate morality. Mm -hmm. And so if we really want peace and we really want prosperity, unleash people's dreams, uncap people's dreams, unleash their spirits, let people soar, let people actualize their dreams, any public policy should be based on that principle, would this help people become more easily the best that they can be, their most creative and their most productive? If you want peace in the world, you want peace in families, you want peace on your streets, and you want a prosperous economy, that's what you do. So, but Marianne, again, if it was executed that way, I'm all in. Right. Uh, but uh, when you say morality, what some people are gonna hear, especially fundamentalist Christians in this country, is good. Uh, that's what I like, okay? We're, we have moral clarity and we're against gay people and they shouldn't have the same rights as us. 
and on all of the different oppressions that they have done. And all the, now the new insanity of Jesus really wanted you to be rich, actually not you, me, <laughs> right? I wanted the pastor to be really rich and the rest of you to be dirt poor and giving me money nonstop so I could fly in jets. So that opens, I'm afraid that it opens the door to that insanity. That, what you just said, is the justification that the left has used for not going there. My point to you is that has not worked very well. Traditionally, what the left has done, traditionally in this country, the right has focused on issues of private morality, and the left has focused on issues of public morality, tax law, is a public issue. Criminal justice is a public issue. Racial disparity in criminal uh, sentencing is a is a I mean is a moral issue. Invading a country that didn't do anything to you is a moral issue. Uh, going along with a genocidal war is a moral issue. The fact that we have not claimed the space of public morality is what has made us so weak now and so powerless when this immoral president is there and we're like little kids going, that's immoral, that's immoral, but we have no ground to stand on because we've never said we stood for anything moral. And even now, if we're talking about policy shifts, but not talking about them from the basis of not only is what he's doing wrong, it's the wrong thing to do, but we're going to feed children and we're going to make college available to people, free college, and we're going to get rid of those college loans and we're going to have a department of peace and we're going to pay reparations. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. You're speaking to a different place in people's minds. All right, and so I don't want to get into Department of Peace because that's where the corporate heads blow up, and that's where they think, oh, anyone who talks about Department of Peace is crazy. We oh. need war and more war. We're 100% aligned on that. I don't know that I would create a Department of Peace, but I do know the warmongering of the corporate media is unbearable. Okay. And so, so you're you're absolutely right about that. One more thing. Now you said you give moral guidance and clarity, and and but. You're roughly aligned with the progressives in the race, Warren what Sanders. What do you mean roughly? Mainly. Well, you and I go, uh, name one thing except I'm not quite over there. Every place you want me to be on the, on the Medicare, although I'm a lot closer. I'm certainly not over there with Pete and Amy. Name one other area where I'm not a serious progressive. No, no, I wouldn't say that you're not a serious progressive, and okay. I put you in the progressive camp all the time. Okay. Yeah, obviously we have this. this Important, small but important disagreement on Medicare for all, right? <laughs> and we're working that out, yeah. and we've talked about it, etc. But uh, <laughs> right, so and we'll talk more about that another time. And and I'm curious what your latest thoughts on yes. that are. But I wanted to say, so if if it's the moral guidance and the bully pulpit in a sense, but you know, in in a positive way, it, bully pulpit sounds wrong, doesn't it? Well, it's got it's got the word true, bully in it. I have more policies and plans. I mean, if anybody goes to my website at marianne2020.com. I have plenty of policies, plenty of plans, economic policies, all of the the kinds of things that you talk about, foreign policy issues, and even when you talk about Department of Peace, these are policy issues. These are, you know, my State Department budget, my my uh, military budget, the peace building agency budget, the the traumatized children, the uh, trauma informed education, the reparations. These are policies. These are not just she's going to talk. No, no, hundred percent. I totally get that. That's not where I was going with it. Where where I was going with it is so you have the policies and you have the uh, leadership. So how do you fill out your cabinet? So who would be your vice president? Okay, my vice president should be someone who is probably a senator because I have not worked in Washington. So for for my senator, uh, for my vice president, I think it's pretty clear it should be a US senator. Okay, interesting. And would you go with a fellow progressive or would you want some sort yes. of balance? <clears throat> of course. Fellow progressive. Okay. Now, how about your cabinet? Like when okay. you look at maybe some of the other candidates or anyone else, who well, do you look at? We have some very good political experts. I think the um, 
the head of the EPA, obviously should be a world-class environmentalist, or Jay Inslee, if we can get him to come back from Washington State. Uh, Secretary of State, we should make sure that the Secretary of State is someone not only schooled in deep diplomacy uh, and the geopolitical realities of this world, but also definitely placing humanitarian values and democratic values before uh, the advocacy for, for, for corporate gains, such as the Rex Tillerson's of the world. I mean, really, ex-CEO of Exxon, or even the way Mike Pompeo works. It's kind of funny because I'd always dreamed, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if you could get Nicholas Kristof to be Secretary of State, and then you have people underneath him who execute it all. And then I read in the New York Times that he said after the second debate, that woman shouldn't even be up there. So I thought, well, no, there I you guess go. not. Cross off the list. <laughs> but Sad you know. day for you, Nicholas. You blew it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what I'm saying. People yeah. who have the expertise and the political acumen to carry out what needs to be done, but the consciousness. And you have people like that on the earth today. You're an example. I'm an example. Everybody, I mean, there is, we're living now, you know, American civilization has gone there. It's just the political establishment that's stuck back in this old 20th century mechanistic model. But American civilization is now filled with people who are highly skilled professionals at getting things done, including within the political realm, and yet who understand that we must stand for the kind of humanitarian principles which will and which will alone cause the kind of changes that we need to happen all right Marianne Williamson thank you so much for joining us thank presidential candidate me. and and I like that you're staying strong thank you yes